When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, this is Mick Jones of Foreigner, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcast. Pantheon Podcast presents Deeper Digs with host and rock and roll archaeologist Christian Swain. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, with the show. Now the seats are all empty. Let the roadies take the stage. Pack it up and tear it down. They're the first ones to come and last to leave, diggers. Hey friends, fans, rocker rollers. Welcome to another edition of Deeper Digs. We have the first in what will become a series of interviews and I'll tell you all about that in a minute. Suffice it to say, today we have the amazing, incredible and one of the true Zelig characters of rock and roll, bassist Leland Scalar. All right, let's get to the business and get that out of the way. Uh, still in lockdown. Yeah, yep. Uh, though I guess there is some opening up, though that doesn't seem to be going well exactly. Now, I went deep and was a little angry last week. Uh, though all the cards and letters I received were uh, rather positive and thumbs up. So I appreciate that. Thank you, guys. Um, if you missed my rants, uh, let me reiterate, but with less vitriol and, uh, and more concise. Uh, masks are very good. Racism is super bad. And while there is no doubt uh, statues of traitors confederates need to be gone, long gone, uh, I think we can draw the line at the night they drove old Dixie down. Make sense? If you need more, uh, go listen to last week's episode. Okay, episode 19, news, probably about a week now. In fact, probably less than a week when this comes out. 1969 Part 2 is in the final touches before release. Everyone is furiously working overtime to get this done and out there. Uh, yes, we are looking at the latter half of the year. So, uh, you get to hear our take on Woodstock and Altamont. Also, a little rock and roll going global. And the fact that memory is becoming mediated to the point of distorting reality. All of this and more at almost two hours of rock and roll archaeology goodness, my friends. We know you've been patient and we feel you will all really dig what we will be serving up for you here very, very shortly. We uh, do have a lot going on at the network, Pantheon, that is. Let me highlight two shows real quick. Uh, one I told you about a couple of weeks ago, but I want to make sure everyone gives it a chance. Reverend Billy Radio is live, and that is our newest show. Please go check out the irreverent Reverend Billy, along with his Stop Shopping Choir, plus the Fiery Eagles of Justice jazz combo. 
The Rev will sermonize on our crazy fucked up world of consumerism and late stage capitalism. All good fun. Uh, and just about in the opposite corner, please check out Kingwood Cowboy's History of Country Music as told by host Larry W. Jones. Larry's from Kingwood, Texas, and he is showcasing the roots of classic and vintage country, cowboy, western, and bluegrass music with interesting commentaries on how the songs came about. You know, a little like rock and roll archaeology with an authentic cowboy telling the tales and uh, with just the right amount of drawl and fireside chat atmosphere. If you are interested in this very important cousin to rock and roll, please go check out Kingwood Cowboy's History of Country Music. Finally, uh, we still have a lot of adult toys and spicy movies over at adamandeve.com. Use the checkout code D-I-G-S-DIGS for 50% off almost any single item. And then Adam and Eve will throw in all kinds of freebies, including shipping. DIGS, D-I-G-S, at checkout will get you and your partner what you need. Okay, there's the sex. You'll have to get your own drugs. And now... Let's get to the rock and roll. Doctor, my eyes have seen the years And the slow parade of fears without crying Now I want to understand I have done all that I could To see the evil and the good without hiding You must help me if you can Doctor, my eyes got something special cooked up for everyone. Today is the first in a series we will be doing with a band called The Immediate Family. A true supergroup, my friends, if there ever was one. Uh, taken together, we are probably talking about guys who played on well over 10,000 records. If you don't know, The Immediate Family is made up of Danny Korchmar, Waddy Wachtel, and Steve Postel on guitar, Russ Kunkel on drums, and first up, our guest today, Leland Scalar on bass. These guys have been playing together on sessions and tours since the early 1970s. In fact, Leland, Danny, and Russ first started working with James Taylor after Peter Asher moved him to L.A. and James needed a band. The first iteration where Taylor worked out these songs for Sweet Baby James that included Carol King on piano. Russ, Danny, and Lee formed a band that they called The Section, where they released three albums in the 1970s. Now, that name, The Section, became about as synonymous as the Wrecking Crew in the later years because of all the work they'd done on other people's records rather than really all about their own. If you want to hear them at the top of their game, go put on Jackson Brown's live album of original songs, Running on Empty. Most of you will remember Leland uh, with Phil Collins in the heyday of MTV. Uh, you can't miss that beard. Phil goes nowhere without Lee on bass. He's also very involved in film and television scores. Uh, basically, he can do it all and does. Seriously, there's just uh, too much to list off. 
Uh, and I suggest just go go look up his Wikipedia page, and you know, that'll convince you uh, that he really is the man with the fat bottom. Okay, let's get to it. Let's get to know Leland Scalar. How sweet it is to be loved by you. How sweet it is to be loved by you. I needed the shelter of someone's arms. There you were. I needed someone to understand my ups and downs. Welcome to Deeper Digs, Leland Scalar. How are you doing today? I am fantastic, and I'm so happy to be visiting with you. Uh, we are socially close enough, but... Uh, but yeah, yeah. At least we get to see each other. That's uh, that's uh, one of the nice things about uh, the, the, you know, we, we were talking before we, we got rolling here that, uh, you know, there are some silver linings with this pandemic. One is blue yeah. skies uh, and uh, the earth beginning to heal itself yeah. uh, in, in, in small ways. And, uh, you know, yeah, this, um, you know, utilizing tech, this technology that has been built over the last 25, 30 years uh, is uh, turned out to be, you know, at least a way to have social interactions, which yeah. we humans are social creatures and desperately need. I'll tell you where it's most fabulous is for kids. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because you know, I've got a little niece and nephew and, and, and you think about like them in school and everything's the playground, their friends and all that. And all of a sudden, man, they are in lockdown, but they're on FaceTime and different, you know, and Zooming with each other in groups and stuff. And I think it's, it's really great because I can't imagine being in a quarantine situation for a kid and not having access to your friends. Mm, mm. So, well, I, I'm having to live it. I mean, I've got a 20 year old uh, junior in, uh, in college who has been living with his parents for three months now yeah. without it's, seeing a single person. Yeah. It's, it's really, uh, it's like we went through a wormhole into mm. an alternate universe overnight and 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 just the whole game has changed and mm -hmm. we really don't know where we're headed yet i mean no, there's no. there's lots and lots and lots of talk but very little of the talk has substance mm -hmm. uh, it's just stress and anxiety and and pressure is creating yeah. so much of the dialogue and i can completely understand that yeah but yeah. at this point you know it's uh it's really great that that th these technologies for communication do exist uh it's 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 great because you know this would really suck if we were like <laughs> chipping away on in the 80s <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. i've thought about that oh my god what would we have done if this happened in the 80s oh my god that would be horrible yeah oh but, but my yards never look better my dogs are getting <laughs> lots of walks and i discovered um, how to do you make my own youtube world besides just sitting and watching it so it, it's i've it's been a very 
it hasn't been a totally negative experience from no. my standpoint. You know, so no, it's, it's been great. Been... Good, what, I, what I can do that's good out of yeah. a, a negative situation. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Yeah, and you have. Uh, you know, we've kept an eye on you. You're uh, you're all over the place. And so I, like- I, I have... I have to start uh, by asking because um, I, I was put into Facebook jail last week uh, uh, and, yes. and our, our show is about the intersection of music and culture and technology. Um, so I, I know you've had a beef with, with Facebook. So I thought, I thought we'd get your perspective on social media and that, that might dovetail into the idea of whether artists should speak out politically. Um, I'm, uh, on an average, blocked on Facebook about 150 days a year, <laughs> um, and and generally it's for something. Uh, I have trolls. I, I've had death threats on Facebook. Guys really? say, "Come on and say we know your touring schedule. We're going to get you," kind of thing. Um, and, and but that's cool with Facebook. They don't ever bother with that. But I've posted things, and I've had like a dozen other people post the exact same thing, and I'm the only person that gets blocked for it. Is it so, because you're famous that? Well, uh, they... I mean, a lot of people on Facebook are famous. I, yeah, I, I think there's. A, 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 I've been outspoken enough where I have trolls 
that yeah. that they 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 gang up, they they file a complaint, and then the the um, algorithms kick in, and and throw you off, and then you get this window that comes up that says if you want to contest it. Yes. Oh yes. You know, all this, and then you write your entire thing out about how you're contesting it. And then you hit send and it goes, oh, sorry, this isn't working right now. Try again later. You know, it's like they're messing with you even more. Um, yeah, yeah. You can't, out, you can't really fight it, can no, you? No, you can't. And, and mm -hmm. so I, I, I always sit and I think I had a pretty complete life before Facebook. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my, my daily routine isn't predicated on Facebook. The thing I miss the most when I'm blocked is I'm really diligent about sending out birthday wishes every day to people. Oh. Um, it comes up. I have a window that comes up with all the birthdays from my friends list. And I've got, you know, like 86,000 people on my on my yeah. page. Mm -hmm. So I get a lot of these in, and and I love sending them out and I get beautiful responses from people going, oh, I wait every year for this. And, so, and, and when you're kicked off, you can't even tell people you're kicked off. So I have friends that then go on my page and post and say he's been thrown off. You know, again, again. <laughs> it's, but there's a real dark, lascivious side to that that site too. Yeah, that mm -hmm. I think wasn't there with the intentions when it started. I think it was just to probably get laid and have a party um, for a bunch of dorks who couldn't. And um, yeah, uh, it sounds like you're talking about Mark Zuckerberg himself. Who's oh, I've, heard, I've heard that name? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Rhymes with suck. Uh, <laughs> You know, well, you know, I, I mean, I don't even want to get into it because I have feelings about this guy, but I have a feelings about all these guys that are sitting in these positions of massive wealth and power that really step into a level that they're not qualified to mm -hmm. be doing. And, mm -hmm. um, and, and when I see a, a site where telling the truth gets you kicked off, but lying through your teeth and being you know neo-nazis and animal abusers and child abuse that fits within their their social norms mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. that my wife went to was in florence italy and went and saw the statue of david no I, i've been there myself statue of david and got mm -hmm. blocked for posting nudity what yeah you know and and i got kicked off once miley cyrus posted a picture years ago of her in a concert and she had these huge plastic boobs and a giant plastic dildo and all this stuff going on on this outfit. And and I posted the picture and I said, you do have more talent than this gives you creds for. I mm -hmm. said, you should really. And then immediately I was blocked for posting nudity. And there wasn't one bit of nudity on the page. It was all. No, it was plastic. all fall. Yeah, it was all plastic. But yeah, but you can't argue with that. But when, no. you, when you see these people out there, you know, waving their Nazi flags and stuff, and I'm thinking about, man, we just had Memorial Day and an entire generation fought these monsters. And now we're in a country where there's they're very good people in there. You know, you know no, so, there's so, not. I, I have I have social media to me is a real double edged sword. Um, it I've is. Been, I've been blocked on Instagram. I've been blocked on Twitter. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, but I just take it, I take it at this point with a grain of salt. I, I yeah. wear it as, as a bad, I must be doing something right if I'm thrown off. I think so. Uh, you know, and that goes to the, the, the point that, you know, this shouting down by uh, mostly uh, this other side uh, that, uh, you know, artists should keep their mouths shut. Yeah. Uh, which I think both of us would say, 
you're missing the point of art in the first place if you yeah. suggest that, right? Yeah. Well, it's it. it I mean, Guarnica, everybody, Guarnica. You know. Yeah, <laughs> so. it it blows my mind every time somebody writes that and they go, "Why don't you just shut the f up and <laughs> yeah. play your bass?" And yeah. I'm sitting there thinking, you you basically are supporting a a, a complete shyster crook bad bad game show host yeah yeah i mean it's with not, with, a, with a trail of failures throughout oh, his yeah. entire life massive i mean he's yeah. like the biggest slug in the world with this huge stream of of, of slime behind him mm -hmm. but it's not like he's albert schweitzer or buckminster <laughs> fuller or, you know some brilliant you know human being this guy's a complete scumbag piece of crap and yeah. I, I i know it personally from a family member who was ripped off by this guy in one of his hotel projects and oh yeah which is common uh, you, yeah, your, your yeah, family yeah. member is in a long line <laughs> yeah yeah so um but, but these people that that think because you're an actor or a musician that you should just shut up and do your craft and not say, well, then you really don't understand what the constitution's all about and what America really fundamentally is supposed to be about. Mm. Um, I don't know, I don't know what qualifies you to talk then. Is a, is a plumber more valuable than a, than a bass player or is, you know, I mean, you're an American, you're a human being, you can have an opinion. I, I get people that come to my page and I've never blocked anybody for, having a difference of opinion even though they all say that they go oh he's one of those guys that if you don't agree with him he'll just throw you off his page i've only thrown people off my page who, who come there with total ignorance and belligerence mm -hmm. and are, are are quoting sean hannity and, yeah they're looking for a fight and 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 fox news uh, i'm willing to listen to somebody if they can present me with facts that are yeah. credible mm -hmm. and 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 I, i'm i i i tend to um when I look at situations and when I vote, I vote on very specific things. And to me, they don't always take sides. There's something that it really, if, if a Republican came to me and had something that was really gonna benefit, you know, the homeless in my area, um, I would absolutely talk to them about it and see how we can facilitate these things and make them work. But if they come on my page and they go, oh, all you snowflake libtards and all that, you know, what about Killary? What about, you know, Obama? You know, I, I immediately just go, there is no dialogue to be had. And I just hit block. And I've got probably 3,000 people on my block list mm -hmm. at this point. Because mm -hmm. I really get, I get vehement uh, hatred stuff coming at me. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, I really don't have the time for it. I, I really, I want the world to be as good a place as it can possibly be mm. and i try when i when i do my posts on facebook and stuff i i i i try to maintain a balance between political discussions and um and things that i find beautiful in the world yeah and, and try yeah. to balance it but I, I no yeah your, your your facebook page is not all uh, uh political screeds or or yeah. anything like that at all um but it's it just every once in a while it's just opinion yeah and I and it's treated as such and, and it gets a little bit tedious um i'm not quite sure if i was ever in a social situation and a guy came up to me and he said, my name's Mark Zuckerberg. I might introduce his testicles to my knee. <laughs> really? Wow. I find this guy so 
so repugnant, repugnant, repugnant <laughs> repulsive, the arrogance. Yeah. 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 And, and, and that all comes with having accumulated wealth. When yeah. I see all the stuff, you know, about that Jeff Bezos has during this pandemic increased his net worth by $43 billion. So he, he goes out there going, I've, you know, I've donated a hundred million dollars to something, you know, that's great. But just in these couple of months, you've made $43 billion yeah, on yeah, top of yeah. which he'll be the first trillionaire. trillionaire. Yeah, yeah. And you kind of go, you could send a million dollars to everybody in the world mm -hmm. and it wouldn't put a dent in your wealth. So don't, don't, don't put these, you know, well, let's not get into that. I mean, no, I, 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 I know what you mean. Money. He's earned yeah. money. He wants to, yeah. When I look at all these these people, the uh, uh, you just think you could go down in history as one of the great benefactors of mankind. Yeah. And, and history books, rather than some guy like oh, the guy's a scumbag. He's not even paying his employees health care and you know that kind of stuff. I, I just find it all disappointing. I think more than anything, I would hope for more. Well, you you were born at an age when, you know, it was a society, an American society built on a collective, uh, uh, you know, a capitalistic collective. Yeah, uh, it, 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 was, it was it was it was reined in. Yeah, very, very. And again, I mean, uh, you know, uh, we had it good. In fact, to be honest with you, that peak America is that period, you know, uh, certainly post World War Two uh, yeah. until we get into the 1970s and, and 80s. And, you know, I think you would agree. And I, I don't want to make this whole thing into a political yeah. dialogue, but but, uh, you know, uh, it all stems from a backlash to civil rights, uh, you know, Brown v. Board of Education, uh, Voting Rights Act, Civil Rights Act, 64, 65. Uh, uh, force busing and things like that. And, you know, white people freak out and they yeah. now are voting as that is their primary concern subconsciously. Yeah. Most yeah. wouldn't admit to that. But in, in the end, that's really what it comes down to. Yeah. And, 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 and those, you know, who are looking for a way to exploit this successful formula came in yeah. and and started doing that economically yeah and then we sit here and we look at minneapolis over the weekend oh. those more cops killing that guy mm. you know because he was black I yep. mean, that, but just period, plain and simple nothing yeah. to do with anything else plain and simple so racism it, 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 i just saw a great little thing on facebook today i think it was a picture of will smith and he's saying um it's something about um uh, like racism is is isn't gone, he says. But cameras are here. Yeah, of. yeah, yeah. I mean, if the if that if that hadn't been caught on on film, oh, they would have come up with some excuse of why it was all his caught. fault. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's easy to throw the blame. So I mean, it, it's it's really sad. There's an element of, you know, yeah. I love watching you know Beaver and Father Knows Best mm. and all those shows. Mm -hmm. They still you know I, I watch Me TV late at night. And mm. Watch all this. And and it's a fantasy world. I yeah. mean, there there was so much shit going on in America. Yeah. Uh, during that period, that 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 is now far more being. Uh, you see it now, um, but but it's really gone down. You know, there's having the administration we have now has given those people an opportunity to crawl out from under their rocks 
and, and enabled them to really kind of spew. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, it's it's a really sad, scary time for this country. I mean, you know, I I, I, I had before my father passed, we used to talk about this all the time and just his heartbreak at seeing the efforts that his generation put into trying to make the world a better place, you know, fighting these wars. And then all of a sudden, just seeing the people that that they fought against being embraced as good people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You just kind of go. But, but let, we could this. Rabble, but, yeah, we, we could go we, on for this. Let's let's well, we're going to shift a little bit here. So, you know, uh, we have I'm to put a small on my face. <laughs> hey, <laughs> uh, we have to discuss the elephant in the room, or rather the elephant stomping all over the world, uh, especially yeah. in the music business. Um, you know, yeah. how are you doing during the COVID-19 pandemic? Um, it's it's weird. I mean, I've been I've never been without work since 1972. Well, really, sixty nine. Okay, sixty nine. Yeah. Seventy two. I, I think of looking at, at at your your gigantic, ginormous CV. It, it like, really was seventy two. It got rolling, but but yeah, yeah. yeah. But so, sixty nine. So yeah. So at this point, to suddenly have what a couple of months ago was an, a very busy year ahead of me turned into a ghost town, like everybody else, mm. and uh, and I. I, I'm fortunate uh, on the level that, I mean, I'll be 73 tomorrow. So I'm on. Oh, happy birthday. Two, yeah, I've got two pensions going in social security and all that. So I'm, I, I can get through this. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I can be solvent uh, while this is going on. Unlike so many people that are just really at their wits end. Yeah. They, they were living paycheck to paycheck. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've just... Uh, I'm gonna, I have to sit and wait it out like everybody else. I'm not going to put myself in an, in a compromising situation. Um, I ended up, we just uh, finished two years, almost two and a half years on tour with Phil Collins. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had guys writing to me going, you know, I saw you because a lot of the gigs were arenas and stadiums. Yeah. So they were saying, man, we could hear you, but the, you know some of the details get lost in those big venues and stuff. So I kind of thought I had a board mix of one of our shows from Adelaide, mm-hmm. and so I thought oh, I'm going to go on YouTube and I set up a little speaker next to my laptop and a little amp next to me. And what I did was I, went, I made uh, some videos of me playing the bass the parts stuff. over the top of the yeah yeah and then putting the bass part on top in detail. Mm-hmm. It took off i mean i've got guys that's like, master class with leland scalar of course <laughs> it's crazy i've got i mean because i talk to guys like rick beato and stuff mm. and who are like the kings of this stuff and they said it's really mind-blowing seeing in two months uh, in like by the end of the week i might have a hundred thousand subscribers mm. on my and so every i've made a point of every single day i sit down and i pick a song and i tell backstories to it and uh, and it's really been a lifesaver on a lot of levels for me. And it looks like for a lot of people, judging by the comments, I'm getting back. People are sending me pictures of them sitting at dinner watching my video. <laughs> honey, uh, hold on, honey. I have to. <clears throat> I gotta gotta get this part. I gotta get this part. <laughs> it's, it's it's crazy. So you know, I mean, my my yard looks like a park. I've been out there working my butt off every day mm-hmm. on it. 
and I take my dogs for walks in, you know, and then I mask up and glove up when I have to go to the market and do that. But musically it's been, it's been really great. And then, um, I, I do a, a lot of work over the years with Judith Owen, who's married to Harry Shearer. Derek Small's and, the greatest bass player in the world. Absolutely, absolutely. And one of the great Simpsons, too. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've been doing a bunch of acapella videos yes. together. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that has turned into our band, which the, is the most important thing to me right now, is our group, The Immediate Family. Yeah. And, and we've been doing um, acapella videos and we just uh, are finishing our video, our videos being finished for the first single for uh, off of the new album that we finished. Awesome. And, and that's going to be kind of, and it's great. It really turned out great. The album turned out, I'm so proud of this record. I'm so proud of the guys. Here's a quick word from our sponsors. We'll be back in a bit. And now back to the program. Mm-hmm. Um, so is is this the fourth uh, album for the section? Well, it's not, it, this is oh, not that's the right. Section. It's the immediate family. You're right. You're right. You're yeah, right. Yeah, right. a little bit the different. Section right. was, the section was Russ Conkle, myself, Danny Korchmar, and Craig Derby. Right. The immediate family is Russ Conkle, myself, Danny Korchmar, Wadi Wachtel, and Stephen Postel. Yeah. So it's a different lineup of guys. Um, a certain amount of lineage. Uh, is shared. Well, yeah, you, but, Russ, uh, and, and Danny. Mm. Yeah, but the um, the section was a was a instrumental band, you know, kind yeah. of rock yeah. fusion. Yeah. And this is all songs, vocals, and mm. everything with the guys singing mm. on it. But um, it, this all just came at such a an insane time because we were rolling Denny Tedesco, who made the Wrecking Crew right. movie, and his father was Tommy Tedesco. Mm-hmm. Um, is we're in the middle of he's filming a documentary about the immediate family and uh and we just had to grind to a halt immediately with all the the stuff that we're doing and it's all in a holding pattern the touring uh for the group we've got things in the book for later in the at the end of the year but everything is with a only if it's safe kind of um, clause in the contracts so we're all frustrated as crazy we're going to do a, a, some more acapellas and we're going to have a couple more singles coming out before the album actually comes mm-hmm. out mm-hmm. but um but for me there is such a joy when we're playing and i look around the stage and i see guys who i've been playing with for a half a century yes and we're, and we're still <laughs> best of friends and we're and the thing that's great about it is we're not sitting resting on past laurels we're still looking forward mm-hmm. and working on all new material and uh, and everybody who's come to the shows just goes, you guys are fantastic. You're like, it's every song I've ever listened to in my life. You guys are playing on it. And then to hear you guys together, you know, doing this. Really on, running on empty is just, that was insane. Yeah, I was thrilled at it. And I was really proud for Jackson that they awarded him. Yeah. Um, that's well, it's so well-deserved. Mm-hmm. And uh, the hardest part of, the uh, whole thing for me was the next year they asked me if I would be a presenter. <laughs> <laughs> of course, they no. roped you in. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Standing up there turned into Ralph Cramden for a moment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I chose bass for the back. Oh, of the yes, yes. Oh, well, we'll get into that. Yeah. So, uh, so how did the movie uh, Immediate Family uh, kind of come about uh, to get into production? 
Um, we were approached. Um, well, I've I've known Denny a long time, and when they were when when he did the Wrecking Crew movie, yeah. Um, I went to a lot of the premieres of them, and because I was a, like a transition. Yeah, uh, uh, for, yeah. But Wrecking Crew is uh, '60s, uh, mostly late fifties. Yeah, late fifties through the seventies. Yeah. but and then you guys kind of start taking some of the work. It's an overlap. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And then to the Toto it, guys kind of overlap you guys, uh, from what I. Yeah, at, so. yeah. Um, they 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 were like ten years behind. Uh, yeah, Luca Thur and Pecaros and all pretty that. Pretty much because. Yeah. Yeah, Luke and, and, and Jeff and Paige yeah. and everybody. Um, but uh, so, uh, you know, Danny and I have been friends for a long time. Uh -huh. And um, and they came to us and and Greg, uh, one, one of the producers of it, they just approached us and they said, we think this is important. And we really think that this period of what you guys did needs to be properly documented. And would you be up for doing it? And we all look at each other, you know, because you're living in your own skin and you don't see your own importance yeah to, to the overall thing you're just happy to get a phone call <laughs> yeah, right right yeah, so so it was uh it was really um flattering that they came to us with this and we all said absolutely and uh so they started following us around it like we played the iridium in new york and they filmed the show there and then we walked around the streets of new york and and they filmed us and we were talking about things and then they've been doing a lot of interviews uh, with, you know, like James Taylor and Jackson Brown and Carol King and Linda Ronstadt and um, all kinds of di different people that that the band had an effect on. Mm. And and then the virus hit. And so everything has ground to a halt until we can actually put a crew together again. And 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 because this is a this is a professional movie. This isn't, you know, shooting it no. all on iPhones. So um, we'll see what happens with it. And the same thing for, for the, um, the release of the album mm -hmm. is it's, it's going to happen, but we're kind of just holding off as long as we can because we'd like to make a big deal about this because it is a big deal to us. And so we're going to release some singles mm -hmm. and just wet people's whistles. And everything I post, I'm constantly talking about it. And I, on, on my YouTube page, I, I played along with one of the songs from the first album that actually is how we all came together. And it was uh, Danny Korchmar's record with the immediate family. Mm -hmm. it was, yeah. And um, so we uh, we're just, you know, like everybody else, you know, everybody's in, in this kind of a haze waiting. You know, it's like a holding pattern. A, uh, yeah, it really is. A, yeah. It's a holding pattern and it, it it's frustrating. A pause in life. It's weird. But being frustrated is not going to make it go away. I, no. I, I I kind of, maybe it's just because I'm an old fart now, <laughs> but it, it's like when I'm driving cross town, like if I work at Village Recorders and I finish at five and I have to come home to Pasadena, it's a two hour drive at Rush. <laughs> yeah. Um, now I can get on that freeway and get home really pissed off, you know, yelling at all the people that are cutting in and out. And also, or I can listen to like the Sinatra XM channel or classroom. Now I'm going to get home at the same time. Yeah. Now, how do I want to arrive home? Um, pissed off or just kind of chilled out and then get on with my evening. Yeah. Um, and that's the way I'm looking at this whole whole uh, quarantine situation. Uh, like you could be really tweaked about this because it's really impacted life in a profoundly negative way. Yeah, for a lot of or I, or I can just, because I'm fortunate enough that I'm not, you know, worrying about where my next meal is going to come from. Yeah. But um, to look at it and go, 
this will end at some point, but the timeframes um, are, are being predicated on things that aren't healthy. I mean, it's, it's politicians wanting to open things so that looks like they're doing a good job and get everybody back. And then you're going to see a ton of people die. And I really feel bad for the doctors and the nurses and the healthcare givers because they've been stretched so far. And if there's suddenly a bigger second wave of this coming through, I don't know what's going to happen to the healthcare system because they're you mean you mean the sick care system that we have in this country? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, which is which is like to is. the bone, uh, cut to the bone uh, for you know uh, 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 economic uh, um, profit reasons. Uh, yeah, you know, and again, <laughs> we we could spend hours on this. Oh, yeah. I think That's you and I we could probably spend days on, on this we could solve <laughs> this yes problem. yeah and maybe maybe we'll, we'll we'll treat that on the next time you come on this show but chapter two. chapter two but so so back to the 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 section in the immediate family um yeah who who in the band was the first that you worked with um i think i met russ first okay it was very brief he was in a band called things to come mm. uh, and i met him in 68 mm -hmm. At a um, at a gig they were playing, and I think a band I was in might have been on the uh, on the same bill. We were all sports, and I was still in college and stuff. But I think Russ was. But then, uh, the biggest one of the most profound moments in my life was in in sixty eight sixty nine. I was in a band called Wolfgang, mm -hmm. and we were one of our managers was Bill Graham, whose real name was Wolfgang. That's so right. Named, well, Wolfgang. Named uh, the band yeah. After, yeah. After, oh, really? After after. Yeah. After, so not not up. Amadeus, uh, but uh, but, uh, but how better how better to suck up to your manager? <laughs> Name your band that. after him. Well, he kind of was a big deal by then. <laughs> oh, I, I love Bill. I love Bill so much. Yeah, yeah. And still, you know, lament his his loss, yeah. which was so. His, his grave is like two miles away from my house, so uh, I've been over there to hard. pay my respects. But, so, so I was so I was in this band, and. It was a great band. I've been posting stuff on my on my YouTube page, some demos we did, and people are going crazy when this has to be released. Mm -hmm. You know, this is great. But our drummer in the group uh, was named uh, Warren Bugs Pemberton. Bugs was in Jackie Lomax and the Undertakers in England, who were pretty much rivals to the Beatles then. And Jackie Lomax was like a he looked like a matinee idol. This guy was right. like you know just beautiful, and the band was great. So we're bugs came over here and we and we all joined in this band together. And um, there was a, a, a friend of his who owned Crystal Recording Studios here in Hollywood named John Fishbeck. And John uh, engineered and produced like songs in the key of life. Oh, wow. Stevie. Real mm -hmm. instrumental in mm -hmm. like all the early Stevie Wonder stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, John used to come and hang out at our rehearsals because we had a band house that we would rehearse at. And at one of the rehearsals, he brought an old friend of his along with him, and it was James Taylor. Oh, yes. And James had just gotten back from England. Mm -hmm. Signed and by so Apple Records, uh, famously. One first of the first artists. Artist. Yeah. Artist. Mm -hmm. And Peter Asher signed yeah. him because he was put in the, the head of A&R uh, for Apple. Yeah. So um, we hung, he hung with us for a couple of days, and we all hit it off. And then James got offered a gig when his, his Apple album was coming out, his first album. Um, he got an offer to gig at the Troubadour, and they needed he needed musicians for it. He had Danny Korchmar, um, 
because they were childhood friends and they'd known each other. And they had a, a band called the King Bees and the Flying Machine. Is Danny from North um, Carolina? No, Danny. No, James is North Carolina, Massachusetts. Yeah. Um, they had places. And so they both, they hooked up on Martha's okay. Vineyard as kids. Okay. Um, so James got offered a gig at the Troubadour and he remembered me from these rehearsals and they tracked me down for it. Um, Cooch, I, 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 I'm trying to remember now how he, how Russ met them. Um, but we came together. Uh, so Russ you know, got into this band as well. Uh, yeah, so the, you, original, the, you, Russ, and, and Danny were, uh, yeah, were together. And the original band for James Taylor, the very first gigs we played was me, Russ, Danny, and Carol King was the piano player. Who? Carol <laughs> King. <laughs> and it, it was amazing. I mean, we, we immediately, we went to England, uh, did stuff on the BBC, oh, and it was great. And there's great footage of it. Yeah. And James really at that point carol was really only known as goffin and king as oh, a songwriter great songwriter but uh, even before that yeah yeah but pre pre-tapestry pre is what you're saying you're oh yeah yeah but what happened was james kept in, encouraging carol and said look at you know let these people know who you are so he encouraged her to come out and do some songs of her own and the next thing you know carol's got goes in the studio cuts tapestry and we have a side side person in our band who has the biggest record in the yes. world. So needless to say, we had to bid her on a wall. Uh, you, sorry, away. you're just gonna have to go yeah. on your own. Right? You're gonna have to go be a huge monstrous giant in the industry. Yeah. I yeah. was in the studio doing an album with Tom Jans and Mimi Farina. And Mimi was Joan Baez's sister. Mm. And uh, there was a keyboard player on the session named Craig Durge. And I called Peter Asher after that. I did that session. I said, I think I found a guy who'd be great for, for to, to take over Carol's slot in the thing. And that was eventually how the section formed mm -hmm. was we would sit and jam because James wasn't, he'd come out and do a line check and maybe run a song, but he had other things on his mind. So he would just disappear and we would sit and jam. And uh, people came up to us afterwards and played us. They recorded our jams and said, check this out. And, he went, Are you and uh, Peter went and got us a record deal uh, with Warner Brothers. I think Warner's was disappointed because of our lineage and the people we hung with. I think they were expecting to get like Poco uh, or yeah, yeah, or yeah, yeah, a more pop and album, and they got a, a jazz fusion uh, album. Yeah, jazz rock fusion yeah. instrumental album. Yeah, but um, we had a great. I, I loved that period. The band was so good, and and then it worked out just beautifully that we would open James's shows doing our music, mm -hmm. and then come back out and play his show. Mm -hmm. And then we would do the same with Jackson Brown mm -hmm. and those and the two camps would be in touch with each other so that there wasn't any conflicts of schedule. We were able to do both guys tours um, and, yeah. and not have one say we're going out at the same time. You better make a decision. Nice. Very nice. And uh, good yeah, for was, those, was both those guys. Like, uh, uh, working really with thoughtful and yeah. giving period. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. All right. So when does the section uh, turn into the immediate family? It, 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 is it, is it primarily with Wadi uh, coming in and, and being a part of it? Well, what happened was um, Cooch got offered a record deal with a Japanese label. And when it, and this was a few years ago, and when the time came to go in the studio to do his obligation to make a record yeah. for the label, yeah. um, he called 
I mean, we'd all been working together. I mean, yeah, you know, I, we, Wally'd we, been on the scene for a million years yeah, as I well. Mean, yeah. Yeah, in the late 70s when we were out with with James, you know, doing like the flag tour and all, all these great tours, it was Cooch and Waddy yeah. were in the band. And then Waddy was off doing, you know, Stevie Nicks yeah. and, and uh, Linda Ronstadt. And, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, there were so many areas where we all came together. So when Cooch got offered this this deal, he called he called me and he called Russ and he called Waddy and he had moved back. He had been living back east, but he moved back to L.A., and he was living near Steve Postel and they had hooked up. So they were doing some writing together and, and, um, and some gigs. They had a little uh, project that they would go out and do some casuals and stuff. And I did some of those with them. So uh, Jackson let us use his studio um, to do the record. And we all said yes. And the next thing you know, so Cooch called it the immediate family. But the, the label for his project uh, in Japan called it. Uh, Danny Korchmar and the immediate family, yeah. but Cooch looked at it. He goes, you know, like we're like a family, we're a brotherhood because we've been together for so long, and it just kind of stuck. I, I always look at names as like I, I remember many, many years ago doing a session with Don Henley, and Henley was just playing drums, and he came up to me uh, during the session, and he goes, "You think Eagles is a stupid name <laughs> for a band?" And I looked at because they hadn't formed; they were just oh. So, so this is when he's still in Linda They're in Linda's band with with Glenn. Yeah, okay. he's stupid yeah. Um, playing. And I looked at him. It's and a little I pretentious, said, but uh, it's a good name. <laughs> yeah, I looked at him and I said, I thought the Beatles was a stupid name for a band. You mean you know, the Beatles? The Beatles? <laughs> well, it immediately conjured up insects yeah, to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I said, just make great music; the name will go with it. So. You know, it's the section. James Taylor named the section. Yeah. He said, well, look, you guys are a rhythm section. Why don't you just call it the section? And Cooch just said, look, at you know, we're a family. We're, our, we're the immediate family. Yeah. You know, so it's it just stuck and I'm fine with it. Oh, that. it works great. And, and then it, now, it, it may be better than the Eagles <laughs> or yeah, the Beatles. Now, with things, with Quarto Valley Records, you know, all the stuff, everything now, is is the band it's like cooch is now melded back into the group so now it's just the immediate family yeah yeah and so it's there's an element of the section in its lineage but it's the section pretty much came to an end at the end of the 70s mm. and this came together a few years ago mm. so i mean there were decades in between. between the two yeah. so it wasn't yeah. a transitional period right 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 and they're still friends with craig you know craig still is is working yeah. and, and stuff so oh damn <laughs> Uh, I, I think that's uh, time to take the chicken out of the oven. Uh, that sound. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a sound here. When when we used to be on the road with James Taylor, he would tell. At one point, he had a somebody gave him a pig, and he named it Mona, and he wrote a song about Mona. I mean, Mona when he got her, she was about the size of a football, and she ended up being about four hundred pounds. <laughs> well, he would tell stories about Mona on stage that were like four times longer than the song. Oh, yeah, okay. So, so I, I have one of my stands sitting next to me, and I put this on the stand. This was from our shows. So when he would start telling the story and it got long-winded, I would reach over and go. <laughs> okay, all right, James. Time to get, yeah. wrap it up, wrap it up. Let's yeah. play some music out there. Well, not, we're not stretching it. We're <laughs> yeah, compressing it. He would hear that bell and kind of do, just get that. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. yeah. Time to play. It was great. <laughs> yeah. It's all yeah, it's showbiz. All right. Let's get, let's go back to the beginning. So you were born in Milwaukee. So how, how does your family get to Southern California? Because I think you moved there when you were young. 
yeah, I was about four, four and a half, I guess, when we moved here. Um, my dad had, my dad was kind of a gypsy. Um, he had lots of different professions, but back in Milwaukee, after he got out of the Marines, his favorite thing was he he was a grip in television. He did like lighting mm, stuff. Yeah. But he but to really make ends meet, uh, they he be, he was a high school teacher, and um, he got offered uh, an opportunity to come to California to teach, mm. and uh, and just you know on a whim they just you know we packed up the buckboard. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, late yeah, late forties, early fifties. That's uh, that's the yeah, great migration out to Southern California. It really was. Yeah. It really was. I mean, in all those all those neighborhoods of just those those houses you know it's really oh yeah all all just recently built uh, the new suburban land and yeah your 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 block would end and then there would be blocks and blocks still of of like like like-minded houses or soon to be like-minded houses yeah yeah Yeah. and and most of those that were going through oh hello (laughs) um most of those were were you know like nine to twelve thousand dollars for a house and stuff i mean it was the the san fernando valley where i grew up was really amazing Mm -hmm. Um, yeah but uh so we came out here and and settled where i look back at milwaukee like when i first joined with phil collins when i met daryl Sturmer, uh the first time we met in the elevator in the royal garden hotel uh in london on both heading to the studio to do no jacket required um, I'm, I look at, I see this guy with a guitar case and I go, uh, he, and I got a bass case and he goes, um, so what do you, uh, you bass player? Yeah. So what are you doing here? I said, well, I'm doing Phil Collins. He goes, what about you? He goes, well, I'm doing Phil yeah. Collins too. And he goes, where are you, where are you from? I go, well, I was born in Milwaukee. I said, how about you? He goes, I live in Milwaukee. I was born. Really? <laughs> I didn't Darryl's, know Daryl was from Milwaukee. Daryl's yeah. like the musical king of, of Milwaukee. And, and, and for me, I mean, these stories get so deeply convoluted because the reason I went into music was when I was a little kid, my parents used to watch the Liberace show on television and I would watch it and I was enamored with it. And that's what, what took me to the piano. And I was like a classical snob young pianist and I Uh won a bunch of awards from from the um the hollywood bowl uh-huh. and, and things like that. oh so you were a musical prodigy on the piano yeah okay so yeah, that's and, where it but starts the, but the thing that's so fascinating is like a, a, a number of years ago um i was inducted into the wisconsin musicians hall of fame mm-hmm. and liberace's in in it too so is liberace like from from wisconsin as well he's oh. from milwaukee really <laughs> wow <laughs> All these things, it turns into like some kind of a weird soil and green. <laughs> <laughs> All from Milwaukee. Yeah, soil and green. Yeah. It's from Milwaukee. Uh, <laughs> so was music a big part of the family or do, were you an outlier yes. that just, uh, you, you know, you were the one and only? No, no. Um, my parents weren't. Play- my dad played a little bit of saxophone. Mm-hmm. You know, he had a sax and he'd honk away on it once in a while just to make me cry, I think. And, my mom could noodle away on piano a bit, but we had a baby grand piano. That was a family uh, piano. So um, I started taking lessons, you know, so I was really the the, mu- the actual musician mm-hmm. in the family. But I did have, like, my mother had a cousin named Herschel Brooke Gilbert. And Herschel was the head of the music department of Four Star Television. So he did the music for, like, the rifle. Oh, uh, yeah. A whole bunch mm-hmm. of 
those uh, off of four, that four-star television did. So there, there's a couple of people. Hmm. The chicken's <laughs> ready again. <laughs> <laughs> and those are the beans. Uh, so <laughs> it's going to be a Cooking with there. Leland Scalar here today. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so it's, you know, all these stories, you know, like everybody's lives, they're all get real convoluted and there's all these. Yeah, but yours is convoluted in a more public way than most people. Yeah. And, 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 yeah, like, and in a weird sort of way, you know, you're not, you're, you know, you're not James Taylor or, or, uh, yeah. or, or Jackson Brown or what have you, but you're in that middle ground. And, you know, yeah. you know, uh, just to take a little side trip, you know, it's, it is really nice uh, that. You know, uh, people in your position in back in the early days were meant to be heard and not seen like children. Right. Yeah. Whereas now, you know, we're we're all getting to know who all these great players were. You know, yeah. I, if you were like me and, and, and a lot of our fans, you know, we 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 always, you know, loved the liner notes and, and started. Yeah. And, and you start to put puzzles together. Hey, this name keeps coming up. This guy, you know, and, and then, it, you know, if you, if you have a, a musical bone in your body, you begin to tune in and say, oh, I think I recognize musically that, yeah. that person. And, and so that's, it's really neat to get uh, that opportunity. But, you know, you're kind of in that middle ground uh, there. And I can understand well, quite convoluted uh, memories when it comes to as many yeah. credits that are I really appreciate it, mm -hmm. though, um, for the fact that when people meet me, it's like if somebody meets Phil Collins, they're like peeing in their pants and shaking and all that, you know, and, and when they when they meet me, they just kind of come and go, oh, man, I saw you like on Sesame Street when I was a kid, man. It's so great. You know, and, and you can they're not intimidated because they somehow they, they don't find the position that you occupy you know, frightening to be around. I mean, I get guys that write to me and say, oh, we saw you across the room at NAM, but I was like too shy to come up and say hi. Oh, well, next time say hi, yeah. you know, what are you talking yeah. about? But you would never see Phil at NAM. You know, no, he couldn't, he couldn't go through there. No, no. he'd get mobbed. So yeah. I, really, I, I kind of enjoy, I mean, the only thing that would have been nice to be one of those guys is, you know, the wealth. That goes that along comes, with it, right. Yeah. That goes along yeah. with it. But they pay a very high price for that. Yeah, wealth. it's a lot of freedom that you lose. Yeah. Yeah, 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 I remember James, uh, we would be on the road and he would say, you know, we'd bump into each other in the afternoon and he'd say, so what'd you, what'd you guys do today? And, we, and a couple of us would say, oh, we went to the mall and had a meal, saw a movie and blah, blah, blah. And he'd say, he'd say, what'd you do? He goes, oh, I just stayed in my room. Yeah. And then one day he confided in me. He said, you know, it's kind of weird. He says, but usually the only time I get recognized is if I'm with you. What? <laughs> Because he could, he could. I mean, other than his height, I mean, he put on a baseball. Oh yeah, hat. yeah. He, he, you can kind of hide. Uh, yeah, he, he could, but yeah. I, I can't. No, no, no. You so not, not when, when you're, you know, you're, uh, uh, you're vying for the championship uh, beard in rock and roll with uh, Billy Gibbons <laughs> and Dusty Hill. <laughs> all right. It's all well, it's all so, uh, this may you may have answered this question, but what's the first record you bought with your own money? Ooh, you know, it might have been the Righteous Brothers right now. Oh, good one. Because I love the Righteous Brothers. Mm. I was so, I was real into R&B. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I love Joe Tex and James Brown and everybody of that, of that idiom. Yeah. And, and like everybody else, I thought the Righteous Brothers were black. They, they, yeah. they sounded mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. way. 
and uh, and one of the greatest treats of me is is Bill Medley is a is a dear friend, oh, and I've done nice. a bunch of yes. recording with him and mm-hmm. hang with him. And but it, I still when I'm around him, I still feel like people do with with with, with Phil Collins, huh? <laughs> yeah, I, I have to pinch myself. That's Bill. Yeah. I used to play along with the records mm-hmm. and and stuff. That might have been one of the first ones that I bought. Yeah, yeah. So if you were, you know, we, we you mentioned Liberace, the, the love for that, and his television show, uh, and um, uh, and you know, you being a classically trained pianist you know what made you switch to more pop rock and and why uh, become a bassist uh when i entered junior high school when i was 12 uh i i went in with the attitude of your pianist is here because i was pretty accomplished at that point and the music teacher at the school i that i was going to um his name was ted lynn um, he said, look, at, we have a whole bunch of kids that play piano, but we need a string bass player. And uh, and he pulled out an old K upright from a back room, a blonde plywood um, bass. And, he, and he, he said, I'd like to introduce you to a bass. And he showed me how to hold it. And the minute I plucked a note and felt that vibration running through me, I just looked at him. I said, I could do this. I like this. Really? And he gave me some rudimentary lessons. Love at first sight. Yeah, he was a he was a, a he was a concert violinist, so he really, I mean, he knew the instruments, and uh, so he gave me some some basic lessons on, on the upright, and I eventually ended up with a couple of different teachers over the years. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, at that point, I was just burned out with piano, so I, I kind of welcomed the bass, um, and and uh, but it was all you know. One of those things I was starting to, you know, listening to pop music and trying to play in bands, but it was real frustrating because, you know, you'd have an electric guitar and drums and stuff, and I'm sitting with an upright bass with my hands bleeding because there was no good mics or anything. You really had to pluck the shit out of it, right? Right, To get to Yeah, so my father finally took me to a a music store that was attached to the uh, musicians union in Hollywood called Stein on Vine. And um, bought me a melody bass and a St. George amplifier. And I suddenly was electric yeah. and uh, could, I could be heard. Mm-hmm. Um, I was still, I wasn't like a guy who dug the Beach Boys or Elvis or any of that particularly. But when the Beatles hit, it was like, was a quantum. I was going to ask change. which, which of those, cause you, you, I'm, you, you're old enough to probably remember Elvis on Edson. Oh yeah. Uh, <clears throat> but that doesn't sound like that affected you as much as, the Beatles, the Beatles on Ed Sullivan is that 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 uh, your 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 world goes from black and white to color. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and and really beyond the Beatles, the whole English invasion, because so many of the groups oh, that came yeah. over during that period were, I mean, Jerry and the Pacemakers, all these oh, bands. Yeah, the Who, uh, the Animals, uh, yeah. uh, on and on and on. The Kinks, uh, you know, that that first British invasion really it was uh, it was it's quite staggering. Yeah. Um, and, and and I love McCartney's playing, mm-hmm. so it really I wrap my head around that. And and I was I was an yeah, kind of an underrated uh, bass player, isn't he? Well, yes and no. I mean, people who really no, know yeah, well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but, but when you have somebody that's got that much talent as as a singer songwriter <laughs> person, I mean everything. You, you, it, it gets it's kind of like James Taylor not being known as the unbelievably great guitarist. Mm-hmm. That he is, because people think of him as a singer-songwriter, but his guitar playing is—is is, there's few that are any better than him. Yeah, 
when it comes to acoustic guitar. Yeah. Uh, so it, 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 it just it ended up kind of turning my head around. I was an usher at the Hollywood Bowl when the Beatles played. You, really? You got to see the yeah. Beatles at the Hollywood Bowl as an I got, usher? I got paid. I got yeah, you got paid money to see the Beatles at the Hollywood. And when I finally met McCartney and I told him the story, he thought it was great. Yeah. He thought it was really funny. Oh. But um, you know, so that was that was a change, and uh, and so, but I never really thought I was going to have a career in music. I, I was in college. I was. A, yeah, I was going to. You uh, go to Cal State Northridge, uh, so you yeah. didn't go for music uh, as a. I started in the music department and didn't like oh. it. Tom Scott was in the music department. There was a whole bunch of guys there. The thing that I found was they were leaning towards creating teachers. Uh, and uh, and I, I was interested in performance. Yeah. So I went up to the administration building and took a series of aptitude tests. And they said, look at your highest aptitude is in science and art. So I focused on that and left the music department. But I was in bands and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I was still in college when when I met James. Yeah, and yeah. Got off with the first first gigs with the first tour with him and walked out the door and never went back. Somewhere in a virtual filing cabinet, I got about two hundred fifty units sitting. Somewhere. Oh, oh, just <laughs> never got a degree or anything. Well, you know, uh, there, if you're bored during this pandemic, you could always go back and uh, get that paper. You know. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so you end yeah. up on uh, Mudside Slim and uh, and the Blue Horizon. Uh, I think that's yeah. that's the first big time that first record that you did. did. Yeah, yeah. That uh, yeah. and uh, and now you're on the road with uh, with James and you know and then uh, it seems like '72 uh, is like when your career really begins to explode. really took off. Yeah. Yeah, it's a you, Danny, Russ, and uh, and Craig on keys, uh, and then you guys are signed to Asylum. Uh, to record the first of these three instrumental albums. No, we were we were on Warner's. Oh, you were okay. It, it, we did two albums on Warner's, and then we left Warner's, and our third album was on Capitol. Oh, okay, okay. And then, and towards the end of the band's existence, like David Lindley had joined up with us. He, yeah, we've got, that guy's a that guy's a monster. Footage. Yeah, there's a great concert footage yeah. Of, yeah. of David playing with mm -hmm. us, and. You know, I would have loved it if it could have taken off, but you know, uh, every band I've been in just never made it. You know, I'm I, I'm I'm fine as a sideman mm -hmm. and doing all this stuff, but it would have been nice to have been in a band. There's there's times where I find myself not jealous, but maybe envious a little bit of guys like Flea and and um, Bill Wyman. You know, where you're in a band and all you have to know is your band's material. Right, right. Those so, those twenty or thirty songs that you play every night. Uh, yeah, yeah. You you make a fortune, and then <laughs> plenty of time. And for me, every time I go to work, I'm joining a new band and creating new songs. Yeah. And so, I mean, somebody did a like a forensic thing about me a, a number of years ago. So the numbers are, are different at this point. But they had estimated that I'd played on somewhere around twenty six thousand recordings songs. Wow, you're you're getting up into Hal Blaine uh, territory there. Uh, yeah. you know who who supposedly is the most recorded man in history. Well, probably Hal. Hal was, you know, the definition of a studio guy. Yeah. Um, but I've done about twenty six hundred albums, and they were looking at you know on an average of like you know, eight to 10 songs or so on an album, because a lot of albums had a couple of different people on whatever. I don't really care. It's not a contest. No. I'm just glad to have been a working musician. But th there's a part of me where you just kind of look and you think, you know, 
there's joy that comes with that kind of stress. And there's also just stress that comes with that kind of stress of every day having to create. Yeah. It, yeah. There's there, when the, when the red light goes on, uh, you gotta, you gotta do it. Uh, and yeah. And, and, and there's, you know, to your point, it's not, uh, an evolution of what has come before. So, you know, that you have with these, uh, other musicians that have been dedicated to this singular pursuit for X amount of yeah. years. Right. Right. Very yeah. different, very different situation. So, so in, in 72, you also have, you know, you do, I think you work with Jackson Brown for the first time uh, that year. Yeah. You work with the Doors on maybe not their best record, uh, Full Circle. But it's yeah, it was still, the, the first album after Jim died. Yeah. 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 Uh, Spencer Davis, Paul Williams, uh, uh, Graham and Crosby, uh, when they did their uh, duo uh, thing, Rita Coolidge. Um, you know, is that the year you realize that you're now a steady working musician? Yeah, I think I, I think I sort of felt that way a little bit um, when I started with James because we were keeping up a pretty good schedule, so it seemed like this could actually be a viable job. Mm. But it was it was around that period in seventy one into seventy two that suddenly it got ferocious and schedule really took off. I mean, I remember after James, the first album I did for somebody else was uh, it was for Brian Highland. Mm who did Itsy Bitsy Teensy Weensy Yellow. <laughs> Poke it up again. And, and, and Del Shannon produced him, uh, who did Palisades Park. Yeah. So, I mean, I suddenly was meeting people I didn't know and working for them, where with James and stuff, I was in a comfort zone. Mm -hmm. We were kind of cocooned in that. But to suddenly start getting calls where I didn't know the people and I didn't know what the music was going to be, was re that was really the enlightening period so the, the uh, question might be where why do you think you started getting those calls um you know as a as opposed to you know pino paladino or bob glob or something like that at that particular moment was it more the work that you did with james or was it the work that you did with the section because you know going back and listening to the section i mean you get to show off there yeah. you know where where with james's material you know you have to pull back uh, that's your yeah. job, you know, is to is yeah. to is to hold down uh, the uh, the rhythm uh, there. So, you know, do you think these people were like listening to the section, going, "Jesus Christ, get me that guy," or was it that? No, I don't think. So. Was it just relationship? So. It, the section was like like a fringe yeah. group. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was. There were a couple of things that came into play. It was the it was like i said earlier the perfect storm because james came along james was the perfect guy to start this new movement in music yeah the singer songwriter uh the singer songwriter uh, of that yeah. caliber because before that i mean you had the barry mcguire's yeah. and the peter paul and mary's and dylan and everybody yeah. but it was a different thing that what james yeah. brought to yeah the thing. It, well it, it and, was a, almost a reaction to the revolutionary 60s uh and yeah. the ability to people wanted to internalize uh and get away from that noise and uh, uh, and and be more insular, uh, and you know, and the, yeah. the culture, you know, the counterculture, I should say, uh, felt the same way. They 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 left the hate and moved out to the, yeah. the, you know, get closer to the ground. You know, created communes and things like that. So James's yeah. music and and you know, Carol with ta Tapestry and and a bunch of these other folks that are at that moment that that kind of plays into that aesthetic. Would you say? Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, and with the. Um, with the advent of James, the other thing that was great was, um, I think it was with Peter's insistence, was that 
our names appear on the album where the wrecking crew never got album no, credit. Yeah, we never yeah. saw the names and records, but our names appeared and suddenly James is on the cover of time magazine and, and all this. So people could go, God, here's a successful record block. And then they flip it over and look at the names on it and they go, well, if it's, it works for him, let's get those guys. <laughs> right, right, right. It, it just sort of evolved. And then the, the more records that, that we did, the more our names got around. And, uh, and, and I had different opportunity in, in 67, I was in a band called group therapy. Um, and our producer on that was Mike post. And Mike was like the king of television. He was in his twenties and he was the musical director for the Andy Williams show. Mm. And he had um, uh, produced Classical Gas with Mason Williams. Oh, wow. Okay. And uh, so, so like in those, in that period of like the 70s, suddenly like Mike tracks me down and he goes, look, I'm doing TV. Do you want to get involved? And I started with the Rockford Files and did all the shows, the A-Team and L.A. Law and Hill Street Blues and you name it. We did every one of his shows. And so people got to know me there. So then I was getting calls for movies. And, you know, it's one of these things that it just takes on a life of its own. You kind of didn't have to hang out a shingle. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah, it was yeah, just yeah. now it was just a schedule issue of where to yeah, fit, yeah. fit all of these um, sessions into. Yeah. And, and also one of the things I did that a lot of the session guys didn't do uh, and they came to regret it was I still maintained a touring schedule. And because guys would tour, you know, the studio guys would go, how can you do that tour? I mean, somebody else is going to take your gig, you know, in the studio if you're on the road. And and early on, I treated it in a way where I would contact all the contractors and producers and that I that I thought something might come up with. And and I said, look, at I'm, I'm hitting the road for this period of time. So I just wanted to give you a heads up and all that. And. And then like a week or two before the, the end of the tour, I would call them all again and say, I'll be back at such and such time. Mm -hmm. And so they, number one, appreciated the fact that you made them a priority and kept them in the loop. And a lot of them would hold on to projects until I got back mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so that it would work. Where other guys I know never told anybody and they just weren't there to return the calls and they lost gigs because of it. Um, so I, I, but when things started to really in the eighties, when synths came in and everything turned digital and suddenly they weren't hiring all the guys anymore, they were, you know, one guy with a synth sitting there and, uh, they were all, you know, the guys that were telling me I was crazy for going on the road were asked, calling me and asking if I knew of any road gigs. Can I get a gig? Right. And, right. and I said, you know, those, those gigs are covered. All the guys <laughs> that are doing them are still doing yeah. them. Yeah. So. Um, so I was fortunate that the consistency of work where some people were like this, mine was kind of like this, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, it had, it was, uh, I was always working sometimes busier than others, but, um, um, you know, well, that, it's, uh, that brings up the question, do you prefer the road over the studio or does it make a difference? Well, they, they're, they're, they're dramatically different. Uh, and there's elements I love about uh, both of them. Uh, I think ultimately to make a decision of one or the other, I think I would, as much hardship as it creates, I would prefer the road only because I like 
an audience. Mm, yeah, I like yeah. immediate gratification like, right there. Uh, well, it's not, it's, yeah, it's gratification, but it's also just the relationship of playing music and seeing people, you know, just enjoying it yeah. you know, for those couple mm. hours a day. And there may, could have been a bad day and they come and suddenly they're in a good mood. Doesn't matter. Right? And also, like when, when I'm playing live, I play a note, the note's done. Yeah. Um, you sit in the studio and play a note, and they can scrutinize that for hours or days, you know, moving and shifting. And, and I don't think that way, you know. I, so you prefer the um, mandala, the mandala uh, type, uh, where it's a, you know, it's a piece, it's a piece of art, and then it's gone. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay, right. Yeah. So. You know, I, but I do, I do enjoy both. So yeah. Um, yeah. You you've been know, lucky and fortunate to, to, to really have, to have a, a, you know, a pretty equalized career uh, uh, between yeah. the road and the studio. All right. So many great yeah. tracks and, and, and albums that it would literally be impossible to go through all of this today. So I'm just going to pick my spots and, you know, feel sure. free to jump in and if, if, if the, you know, the, it strikes you, a chord strikes you, and I'm missing something or, or somebody. But, you know, I have to ask about the obvious, and, and that's first, and that's working with Jackson Brown, which leads to the masterpiece, Running on Empty. Uh, you know, a live album of mostly original songs that sounds so fucking good, it sounds like a studio project, you know. Was it that just you guys were that tight? You know, I, yeah. I, you know, I mean, God, I just... I just don't even know where to begin to ask questions about that album because I listen well, to it and just it just blows my mind how great the musicianship is. First, first off, it was great having the late Greg Ladani mm. recording mm -hmm. us out there because Greg was a great engineer, so he could capture the bus, he could capture a hotel room, he knew how to set it all mm -hmm. up. Um, we were we were that tight, and because the section was really a cohesive unit. It wasn't like hiring different guys to come in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. two weeks to, to get it together and off you go, right? Yeah. And, and so the relationship with Jackson was already very well ingrained uh, within all of us. The material was great. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I think makes it one of the best live albums is it's a live album. So many people have made live albums, and by the time they get finished tweaking in the studio, <laughs> all the overdubs to the audience. <laughs> you know, they're in there redoing their vocals, redoing the horns, redoing this and that. Uh -huh. and, um, Running on Empty really is is a representation of exactly what that tour was about. Yeah. And every time I hear it, uh, it comes on, I just sit and smile. I go, man, this was really amazing. It was one of the best tours I've ever done, and it really still stands the test of time. When, when you hear oh it. gosh with, with, without doubt uh like i said it is uh, an unequivocal masterpiece um and and just you know since we were talking about the road or the studio i mean it's you know it's an album all about being on the road and you know, the yeah. the good and bad of it and uh, the trials and tribulations and you know uh it's all there and you know you're 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 living it and playing it at the, at the same time, which yeah. is also a real meta sort of thing when you think about it. Well, it's kind of like the moment we're living in now. I worked on the movie Groundhog Day and oh. I'm living it. <laughs> With Bill Murray, right? <laughs> right. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So, all right. So the immediate family gave us a gift uh, to uh, the quarantined. Uh, and a few weeks ago, uh, you guys did a cool socially distancing version of Werewolves of London. Now, I think John McVie actually played 
base on that original. Yeah. But you worked a lot with Warren Zevon. And I'm betting yeah. that must have been an experience. Yeah, Warren, Warren was truly one of the most wonderfully eccentric characters I've, I've ever known. His, his, his talent was so deep and, and the caustic side of his lyricism and everything was really fantastic. Um, I, I, you know, I loved being around him because it was always a surprise. I mean, when you'd sit and listen to these songs, you would just, he could go from the most deep, heartfelt, emotional things to just like the most out. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, like could turn into the mothers of invention real quick. Right, right. Um, and it was, you know, when you really, towards the end when he was dying and how he handled it was what Warren was like, you know, I mean, sitting there with Letterman, yeah. just kind of matter of factly talking about, you know, it's just coming around the corner and blah, blah, blah. And you go, he was a, he was a completely unusual, uh, fascinating guy to be with. Uh, I love that I had the chance to work with him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm really glad to see he's getting more love uh these days a lot of people are going yeah. back and putting him in you know a, a a more elevated category uh of of artists than than he was during his time uh, yeah. you know i mean you know let's face it he he had uh, some self-inflicted problems uh that derailed uh what could have been a really brilliant uh and yeah. much larger career um but you know he's still you know what he put out was pretty fucking good so yeah. and you were you yeah. know lucky enough to be playing on a, quite a bit yeah. of, of that so so um you know who who do you always get most excited about when when the call comes you know it's the call it really is doesn't matter doesn't matter because so many times i've been called and and i have no idea who the artist is i've never heard of them and i show up to the project and it's great music <clears> is great the artist is great and i'm and i'm meeting new people so it's kind of like i don't really you know I, I don't really think about it in those terms. I'm, I'm just grateful to be a working musician. So when the call comes, I, I get excited. I go, oh, I'm going to go play. Yeah. It doesn't matter who it is or yeah. what tour or, you know, as long as the music's good uh, and quality, uh, that, and, that's and all, that's the excitement. And people that you can stand to be around. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. where it gets hard sometimes. To, you, know, <laughs> you get around some pant loads that are really you know, tough. To, I'm sure. I'm what, sure. Yeah. What, you know, there's, it, it's, it is an ego driven business, uh, you know, especially at the higher echelon. Yeah. So. But it's few and far between most everybody I've ever worked with and, and been with. Um, I, I have the utmost appreciation for what they do and their talents. So. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So uh, if you, Pino Palladino and Bob Glob are all playing poker, who's going to win? Um, you know, it's a great, it's a great little grouping. I guess if, if, if they suddenly made everybody stand up and go by your height, then Pino would win. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, I, I really want to know about your hobbies. Um, it, we have another show on our network called uh, Side Jam. So I'm stealing a bit from my, my, my friend and host, uh, Brian Reesman's gig. But what are your, what are your side gigs? I, I think you're into old cars, but, uh, but there may be more to it than that. Well, I, 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 having grown up in the San Fernando Valley, um, I always, you know, it was a car culture out there. So you were always, you know, you know, George Barris and, 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 um, Ed Roth and all these guys. I mean, there, there were car shows mm -hmm. 
all over the place and you'd go to Bob's cruise night on Wednesday nights and the parking lot would be full of all these bitch and lead sleds and stuff. Yeah. Um, I had a whole bunch of cars at one point, but I don't really, never really had enough money to do it right. And you really need some dough if you're going to have multiple. So I ended up getting rid of almost everything. And I, I, I still have a hot rod, um, mm. but it's been sitting in the garage for two years now because I was on the road. And uh, during that period, the, the radiators pretty much trashed. So the radiator sitting up in, near you up in central California, up near the Bay Area. Um, at a shop up there that's recoring it because uh, to do an old uh, Model T radiator, you've got to unsolder the whole thing. And oh my God, so it's, yeah. a, it's a bigger job. So I don't. And then the pandemic hit when it w went up there. So their shops, you know. It's, mm -hmm. But I, I think one of the things that I really enjoy is I love uh, I love gardening. I love working in the yard. I, yeah, I'm you mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really I'm fortunate that my wife knows everything about the yard, and I'm really content to be grunt labor so she'll come up <laughs> you and, do the digging <laughs> yeah she'll come on and place plants and set things out and mm -hmm. and then just you know then goes in and i do the, the grunt work and then she comes out and does trimming and you know yeah. collecting so we're a good team in the yard and um and then you know but most of the time you know before this pandemic I, I mean, it kind of shocks me that, I mean, like I said, I'll be 73 tomorrow. Yeah. And I thought 20 years ago, I'd be out to pasture in this business. Yeah, it's, you know, a, it's a very youth-driven youth business. It. Yeah. It's a very youth-driven uh, thing, but, but I'm still busy. You know, this would have been a really busy year had this not happened. And these past two years out there with Phil Collins, I mean, here's a guy who's walking with a cane because of a bad back surgery, yeah. having to sit on a stool for a thing, and he's selling out 50 to 70,000 seats a night around the world. Well, I mean, it, 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 it's so hard to kind of comprehend how this whole business works and what your expectations were as, as a youngster mm -hmm. in it, you know, and don't trust anybody over 30 generation. And, all of a sudden we're like our old grandparents yet we're all still out here playing rock and roll i, I look at the you know the immediate family and uh we're all you know i mean wadi just turned 73 um a couple of days ago we're four days apart and uh and cooch i think is 74 and russ will be like 73 i think or 72. You know, I, I think it just goes to <clears throat> to show just you know how significant this period of music it was. was and 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 will be yeah continues goes on yeah. you know it's it's um you know uh, uh i spend a lot of time uh thinking about uh you know the 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 point of it that's why we created rock and roll archaeology to begin with and that uh that it does hold a very unique spot in um in 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 music history because you know for the first time musicians weren't you know um uh, you know the the middle class they were now you know the elite uh you know and uh you know it's a lot with timing it's uh it's uh technological but but the thing that i think is really important about this era is that most of this music is performed and written by common people yeah. and it's for the common people. It's not, you know, music prior was mostly made 
for the elites because they're the ones that were paying the bills, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it almost seems like we're heading back into that silly world again. And, you know, we're, I, I feel that the connection of the, especially the lyrical content, uh, is less about the common man's experience and more about either, you know, the fantasy of being yeah. uh, in an elite or, or trying to uh, capture the attention of, of the elite, which is, a, to me, a sad thing. Oh, it is. It is. I mean, I, I don't want to fall into a, a morass about it because there's a lot of talent out there, mm -hmm. a lot of really good, oh, good, without doubt, good yes. artists. Um, the business changed dramatically when the uh, when the, the labels sort of started dying out, and the guys who ran them, the Ahmed Erdogans and the Jerry West, oh, the real record men, yeah, yeah. The guys who loved music and not yeah. just the bottom yeah. line, yeah. Um, it, it, it changed quite a bit, and and one of the the hardest things I, I see for contemporary musicians is. We were very fortunate growing up in, in a town that had tons of clubs, tons of opportunities to play and hone your skills. Mm -hmm. And now there's very few clubs, so there's very few opportunities for musicians to get together, connect, and then and, and then develop your sitting in a garage or in a room, you know, is not going to do what a, playing in a club to an audience does for you. No, live playing live. Yeah. That's is a all about. complete so, different experience. Yeah, yeah. It's a different time. And it's very, it's very difficult uh, mm -hmm. at this point. Um, I end up doing, you know, a, a, a few master classes, you know, and I've done it at Berkeley and uh, stuff. And you really have to temper your conversation because you don't want to, um put a damper on people's enthusiasm but you also want to give them a, a dose of some of the reality they're going to be facing yeah and and uh, you know because the school doesn't teach that the school you know is collecting their fee and you graduate on friday but you know suddenly monday's looming and what are you going to do yeah and you have two hundred thousand dollars of student debt and you got to yeah. go get a job and uh, let's face it you know the arts is not known for you know uh, uh a uh a very comfortable lifestyle yeah. uh in the uh the financial department yeah uh, it's something you do because you you have, have to. to right yeah. right right there is it, it, there is no plan b it is just yeah this is, it's what this is it yeah so yeah. so it's it's a it, it's a little bit tough but you know for me i just feel really blessed it was kind of like the golden age of all this that period where we really were uh on top of things here and la was a vital ferocious music scene mm -hmm. with lots of venues and lots of recording and so you were busy every day i mean i could we could do two three four sessions a day easily yeah um, and then be going out and playing a club or, or whatever, mm -hmm. and, and then hitting the road you know, and coming home from the road and going from the airport to a studio. Yeah, know? literally yeah. landing and grab the suitcase and uh, yeah. the base and head to a session. Yeah, it was it was a remarkably vital uh, period. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I, I feel that I, so many young guys come up and they always just go, I was born at the wrong time. You know, they kind of, study that period and that's what they long for and mm -hmm. it'll never happen no i you know i i feel it you know i i just play in a you know a classic rock cover band and uh you know to this day uh you know uh i get you know, young kids who just like are enamored by the 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 
the plane. It's just, it's crazy. It's, um, uh, I'm surprised. I mean, you know, to, you know, to your point, we all should have aged out a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and that just goes to, to show the power of this particular music. And again, I don't think we're trying to say it's better or worse than music today. It's just, there was, there was, um, you know, it was a touchstone and a cultural language to the people. Yeah. And I think that's missing in the music today. And, and, and it, not, nothing against the music. I just think other pursuits, uh, other distractions, other pursuits uh, have taken that away. Uh, you know, people ask me all the time, well, if, you know, if it's not rock and roll, what's the music of the day? And while I'll gladly say hip hop is the, the, the music of the street and the closest that you could get to what the original rock and roll was all about. Um, it's really social media is the, 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 the language of the kids today. Yeah. It's not music. It's, you know, I mean, uh, you know, they, they could probably learn to live with music in the background. I think that's the way to put they it. They do. I mean, music in the background. You know? Well, when you think back to when you were young and one of the, the best things you could ever have is a great stereo system. Yeah. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Oh yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and you have everybody now walking around with just earbuds and that's their musical experience. Yeah. So yeah. And poor music like, quality, hmm? you know, not that poor music quality. Oh, yeah. it's, so, uh, I mean, it's this, not as good as it, it this was is what they're listening to. Not yeah. This. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's become the norm. I mean, if mm -hmm. you take a kid in and you set them down in front of a real stereo system, they kind of just freak. <laughs> yeah. Because they're hearing things they've never heard before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, Feeling it, the music, as Neil Young likes to say, you know, yeah. it's, uh, it's really about that. Um, so, you know, what would you say to, uh, you know, kids who want to follow in your footsteps? What kind of advice do you throw out to someone, uh, you know, who asks that big question of how do I do it? Well, I, I, I try to tell people one of the essences of this business is, is connecting with other people. So I, I always just tell them, I said, you know, try to hook up with friends, you know, as many people that you can um, and, and play as much as you can. And if it's in a garage, you know, so so be it. Find guys that you really are comfortable with and then go, you know, find what venues are around and, and see if you can. I mean, I still play birthday parties. You know, I mean, if somebody calls and says, I got a friend that's turning, you know, like 60. And we'd put together a band with like Vinnie Caluda and Mike Finnegan and stuff. <laughs> and these people don't even know it. They don't even know that they've got like this world-class band doing like, you know, R&B. Happy birthday. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, but it, it, it really comes down to um, the, the essence of, of making acquaintances and, and nurturing them because nobody's out looking for you. Yeah. You know? You've got to, you've really got to put yourself out there. And, you know, some people are fortunate. They, they can put together, you know, they got enough uh, chops with it where they can put together kind of a YouTube video that might get some attention or something, but it's kind of sad. I mean, you see all these people just watching, you know, all these, these shows like the voice and, and American idol and all that. And it's sort of this mentality of you go from loading dock to superstar without that's any not how life actually works. No, and it's not. And it's sad that that sort of paints the picture of it. And especially with those shows, as successful as a few of them have been from those shows, the real essence of it is you're only as good as your season on it. You might win the voice and then the new season starts. You're old news if you haven't made a big mark during that because the audience's attention is going to be to the new season. 
and yeah. who's next on it rather than building the Bonnie Raitt type, you know, followings over years and years. Yeah, yeah, because it took her almost 20 years yeah, to become big nine time. albums yeah. before yeah. the time. Yeah. Um, but people believed in her at the label and her music mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and, it, and it happened. But with these kind of shows, you know, nobody knows who anybody on these shows was practically. I mean, there's, you could probably count on one hand those that, of all those shows that have actually really made it um, to a level where they're like a household name. Yeah, you know, I, you know, I mean, I, you know, you'd put Jennifer Hudson, Adam Lambert, uh, uh, maybe Kelly Clarkson, uh, Kelly Clarkson and, uh, and uh, oh, uh, what's her name? Uh, uh, Carrie Underwood. Yeah. And, that, and that's about it. That's, yeah. that's, I mean, that's, where's, that's about where's Ruben stuttered and yeah. Clay Aikens <laughs> and, and Taylor. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. like, it's, it's one of these things that uh, it's just sort of anomalies and stuff where there's always been crap, but I think back to like the amount of music that was going on. I mean, going to clubs back in the sixties in LA and seeing the who and Jimi Hendrix and CTA and, you know, all these, these amazing, you know, bands, it was a vital music scene going on and, and in schools now, man, the budget's first thing to go is the arts. Yes. Are, yeah. Yeah. This, I, I hate this, uh, this concept STEM. I keep, going to people whenever they bring that up i say no you mean steam you need the a and the a is the arts yeah and uh, we we have just decimated that in this country and you know um uh, you know that goes along with a lot of the things that we were kind of talking about at the top that uh, we just don't have an interest in uh, you know a society that is trying to better itself yeah. and you know it starts with education and part of that education is the arts i mean you know a lot of people you know say well mathematics well music is mathematics yeah. uh, you know it's it's it, it's actual mathematics in practice you know in principle and uh, uh and if you learn an instrument you can actually uh, put those things together better in your in your head uh exactly. it, one would think but yeah so it, it probably probably starts from there so all right let's get happy again here who <laughs> who is uh the more zelig character you <laughs> or wadi i can't decide Wow, that's a good question. Um, the, the the thing that's great for both of us is is we're, we're both out in the public a lot, and we're both recognizable. Yeah, uh, yeah, it, it's it, it's it, a it, weird it, sort of thing. You can't miss either one of you. Uh, uh, the, it, the real joy is we're yeah. hanging together on the road. We, we can cause <laughs> commotion. I can imagine. Yeah, I can it was imagine. Funny. We just did a uh, a rock cruise. Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, was like Roger Daltrey and, and Nancy Wilson and all these people. And when we got when we got on the boat, it was funny. I felt bad for him. But we get on and this was with the immediate family and we get there and like immediately everybody's like talking to me and they're talking to, to Wad. And at one point, Cooch is just going. Man, it's just nice not to, you know, people don't really recognize me. So I'm, I can have the freedom to kind of do what I want. And by the next day, he's going. Nobody's talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like it went from like this is really cool to crap. No, you know, nobody knows who I am right now. It's oh, just tell them go listen to Building the Perfect Beast. Everybody will know Danny from there. Yeah, I no, mean. I mean by by the time we played our first show, yeah, they all knew who he was. But I mean, it was just really pretty cute. But yeah, Wadi and I, I mean, we've we've so, so over you know the millennium have committed to an image that. Uh, 
Yeah, I, I was, I just, uh, there were guys working out in the street uh, outside my house doing some work out there. And I just took my dogs for a walk and immediately like one of the guys looks up and he goes, oh man, I love your YouTube channel. I watch it every day. <laughs> really? Wow. Yeah. You know, I mean, it just, it happens every day it's in the supermarket and stuff. Yeah. But once again, it's getting back to that thing where I sit in a really comfortable position with that because nobody, they, they feel like they know you, they've seen you so much, but you're not the star. So they're not freaking out. Yeah. Yeah. So they come up in there and they immediately are comfortable. They just come up and go, Oh man, I love what you do. I mean, I've been watching your thing and blah, blah, mm -hmm. blah. I saw you at such and such. You're like on every, my favorite, you know, it's, it's an ease. And that's really kind of nice rather than seeing these people coming up to James or Phil that are sweating bullets and shaking and crapping in their pants. They're so nervous. And I'm going, I'm more interesting than that guy. Yeah. <laughs> well, with you, uh, you know, you there's no character. Uh, you are you, you know, yeah. and, you know, the front man uh, needs there. You need to be a larger version of yourself to, yeah. to, to begin with, uh, just to translate out into a, you know, a large venue and what have you, yeah. uh, you know, Jagger is obviously comes to mind or James Brown, you know, those huge giant characters. And so, you know, it, it is, it becomes intimidating at that point when, and, and then you also don't know, are you, are you, you know, is this the character? Is this the real yeah. person? And so there's a lot of psychology. It's like, I've known Alice Cooper since the 60s. Oh, yeah. And 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 Vince is really great because he, he his idea is Alice is on stage, Vince is playing golf. That took him a long time to figure that out, but, but he yes. Finally came to grips with that so that yeah. he, that he could enjoy both aspects of his life. Yeah. Uh, equally. Yeah like that yeah, and yeah. Uh, and and that and it saddens me so many times when i see these guys that turn into like elvis and michael jackson and friends uh, where you know for all their gift they become isolated and they're surrounded with sycophants that are only doing their bidding and generally the bidding ends up with a really bad outcome mm -hmm. and uh, so it's just a, it's you know i i feel fortunate that you know that i can go out every day i'm never in a situation where you know, people, I mean, I, I walk, my, like it's, my it's a nice level of fame. It's a real good level. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah recognition yeah. and, and enough success to be comfortable. Yeah. But not a, a kind of stuff that makes your life uh, an isolationist. Yeah. Which then leads to a, a lot of problems a lot of that, death, that we've death. seen. And you, yeah. And death and destruction. Right. Right. Yeah. All right. Go, for our gearheads, I have to ask about the Frankenstein bass, uh, which appears to have been used on 90% of the recordings you've done. Oh, there it is right there. Right here. Oh man. Well, Look at that. Rotten music with grout, uh, with, with, uh, uh, Oscar the grouch. Oscar the grouch. Right. Wow. That's yeah, when we did Sesame street. Um, he signed amazing, it. amazing. So tell us about creating that thing, which, um, well, um, my, actually here's my first base. And why, uh, why? Because you, I, I think you, you, you've got a couple of different P bases in there. You shave the neck and you also use, uh, I'll tell you. Oh, okay. Yes. Please, <laughs> please master. Tell me. <laughs> um, I somehow ended up with a 62 precision neck. Um, and it sat around for a while, but it was a really good piece of wood. It was a really nice neck. Um, the watering hole in L.A. for most musicians back in the days. Arnie's Beanery. No, Westwood Music. 
Oh, Westwood music. Okay. Yeah, Fred Wallachy and Westwood yeah. music. I mean, anytime you went in there, there, there would be Jackson Brown would be in there or, you know, Ry Cooter, all these, everybody hung out there. It was a real wonderful place. It was a room in back where guys would sit and jam and stuff. And the, the main guy who did all the repair work there was John Carruthers. And so I was talking to John and I said, I have this neck. And then he said, there's a company called Charvel that was, oh, yes. making, that was making, you know, bodies. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that they weren't that, they were, I think, in San Dimas, which isn't that far from Pasadena where I live. So I, I went out there and they had, they had done a run of precision bodies, of alder bodies. So there's a big stack of them sitting there. So I ended up getting a piece of wire and just hung all these, each body from a piece of wire and just tapped on it just acoustically to hear the, and one of the bodies just boom, boom, it just sounded great. So I bought the body, took it back to John, and we decided to make a bass out of this thing. So um, what we, like these, the EMG pickups on this are like, those are Rob's first EMGs. Now, underneath the cover where Oscar is, would have been where the it was a precision body, so that's what was okay. well, the original pickup would have been there. Yeah, yes. we mm -hmm. decided to put these pickups because I'm more of a jazz bass than a precision bass guy. So we put these where jazz bass pickups would have gone, but normally these would be reversed in position. That's the standard precision. Is this pickup would be down here? Oh uh, yeah, would be there. And I thought about it and I went, just by the nature of the G and the D string, they're going to read clearer than the A and the E string. So why would you put that pickup closer to the bridge, put that one closer? And we did that on both of them. And it made all the sense in the world. It totally evened the instrument out. Has the badass bridge. This is like one of the very first hip shot detuners on here. Oh, wow. Okay. That, uh -huh. that, that Dave um, invented. And, but, I really prefer the contour of, of a jazz bass neck. So we stripped the frets out of this neck and 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 I brought my old 62 jazz bass to, to John and we did a template off the neck and reshaped the precision neck into a jazz neck, which meant we then, after it was all finished, had to refret it. And I was walking around his shop and I saw all these spools of fret wire and I saw this one spool and I said, what's this? And he said, it's mandolin wire. I said, let's use that. He went, it really wouldn't work for bass. It would wear out too quick and all that. I said, well, I kind of like the idea of it. So let's, let's try it. And if it doesn't work, I'll pay you for a refret. And we'll just go back to regular bass frets. It turned out to be the smartest thing I ever did. Um, the bass feels like almost a fretless when you're playing it, but you still get all the clarity. I can play chords and stuff on it and it's all real in tune. And, and the thing is I play hard and I do like a lot of vibrato and stuff. This I've used, we built this around 74, three or four. Yeah. And I've used it on probably 80 to 85% of everything I've recorded since then. And, uh, and I've had three refrets in the whole period. Wow. So, so it didn't, it didn't wear out. But the bass just, it's one of those things, you know, we could have plugged it in and it could have been just a, a tank, you know, but we plugged it in when it was done and just went, wow. And under the, the thing where Oscar is, where the original um, pickups would have gone, 
I, I run 18 volts. So under that is two nine volt batteries in that cavity. Oh, so we didn't have to route another uh, battery thing. Cause I like, I like active paces yeah. more mm -hmm. than passive. Mm -hmm. So that's, Fra that's Frankenstein. And then uh, <laughs> in, in um, 82, the Dodgers won the world series and we went in the studio to do Queens. We are the champions with the big blue wrecking crew. Yeah. And um, at the end of the session, they were signing baseballs and the, this base still was just a, a, you know, there was nothing on the body. And I looked at them, I said, I grabbed a baseball, but I said, Hey, sign my base. And so they said, really? I said, yeah. And so all the guys signed the base. Then I ended up at a gig with James Taylor and Rocky Blyer and Lynn Swan from the Pittsburgh Steelers were there and they looked at it and they went, oh, man, baseball player, pussies, you need football players. <laughs> Here, let us sign your base. <laughs> and then it just took on an entire life of its own. I've got everybody from, you know, Clapton to Sting to George Lucas to Andy Griffith. I mean, you name it. Wow. And uh, and then I have another base that's kind of a duplicate of it that the Japanese made for me off of a BB series base. Um, is that Dingle? Uh, the, the Dingle no, base? No, Dingwall is a whole other. Oh, Dingle. Oh, I'm sorry. The, the Canadian. Mm -hmm. But this was just a Yamaha base that, that they built to be somewhat like it. It's a really good base, too, but mm -hmm. it's not quite this one. But it was it's this one is my main base. And I didn't ever clear code it. So names have come and gone. And so, yeah, but, but on the Yamaha one, I started getting signatures on that. And since it was black, I was doing it all in like metallic markers. And then I sprayed clear over it. So I did all these weird gigs. I've got Milton Berle and Bob Hope and Debbie Reynolds and um, God, you, you kind of Reba McIntyre. I mean, you name it, it's covered completely in autographs too, but that one they're, they're protected. Um, but well, I, I do a strange gig. I just say, kind of sign my base. Yeah, I expect uh, those two uh, to be uh, in Cleveland um, yeah. when you're long the, gone. The, the, the pedigree of the Frankenstein base is probably one of the most profound bases in the music industry. Yes. I mean, yeah. it's been on more records than almost any base out there. I mean, it's like when I would go to Stax and, and see Duck Dunn's base sitting in a case and you just go, Oh man, <laughs> that guy! <laughs> like, oh man. So you know, certain there are certain iconic instruments. I did a interview photo session um, with Peter Frampton when he got his Les Paul back. Um, oh, the the uh, the triple, uh, uh, yeah, that just yeah. recently, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so we did a photo shoot together, and we had both of those, my bass and his guitar, and it and stuff. So it was cool. Uh, so, you know, we spent a lot of time talking uh, in rock and pop, but you also are first call in the country music scene. Um, you know, you you did some early work with Glenn Campbell, who was in the Wrecking Crew, Jimmy yeah. Webb, uh, which, you know, Glenn and Jimmy together, just <laughs> monsters, uh, Ricky Skaggs, uh, and you're all over Reba McIntyre's catalog yeah. and Clint Black's. So is there much of a difference playing these different styles? No, not you know, I mean, to me, the thing I've found is almost no matter what I get called for, be it, you know, rock, metal, hip hop, anything, there's a certain similarity within it. And I managed to find this common ground that seems to work in most genres. Now, the reason I ended up doing a lot of country was back when he was in Los Angeles, I did a lot of work with Jimmy Bowen, who, who, when he he because he was doing sinatra and, and dean martin and you know, all kinds of stuff i did anthony newley with him and you know all kinds of different things 
Well, he moved to, to Nashville and took over Capitol Records. So he called me at one point. And he said, you want to come down here and work? He said, I'll just fly you down. So I would go down like, especially through the 80s, I would go like, you know, every other week, practically. And so I did, you know, the early Vince, Susie Boggess, Patty Loveless, um, Trisha Yearwood. I mean, you name it. I probably did about 500 albums down mm -hmm. there. And plus, when I got down and started doing that, I ended up being hooked up with the contemporary Christian people down there. So I was doing like Twyla Paris and Stephen Curtis Chapman and second chapter of Acts and all these things. So, I mean, I look at everything as, as, as a job in songs and mm -hmm. I just approach each song. I, I do everything on an individual basis. All my service, service, the song, service is, the song uh, is, yeah. it, it's a hundred percent of what this is all about. Mm -hmm. um, you don't impose yourself on the song. Um, you just uh, you listen to it and you find out what it wants from you. And, and then you do it. And hopefully they get you on the first or second or third take at the most, because that's when all the juices are flowing. Right. But, right. but you know, for me, I mean, the, the difference between playing on a Vince Gill record and doing Spectrum with Billy Cobham really isn't a massive difference in terms of what I do. I listen to the song. And I find a bass part that seems to fit it and play it to the best of my ability. And then I'm, you know, go home. Yeah. Well, you and Frankenstein uh, are yeah. a good pair. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> Almost guaranteed uh, a hit. Uh, yeah. if, if you guys are on it. Home, I, I keep it at home. They're traveling with instruments. No, no, no more traveling with, uh, with that. Yeah, you, I can yeah, imagine. I'm fortunate with my Dingwalls and with my Warwick bass. Yeah. Um, there, you could buy them. So yeah. like if something suddenly happened to it, you I can get, get another, another one. one. Yeah. So, yeah. So that, that's primarily what you take on the road. Now, yeah. The, I, I, the I take or the, on uh, Phil Collins' tour. I use my, my ding wall because I need yeah. a five string for the whole mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. And then uh, like with Judith Owen, uh, I was using my uh, Warwick signature, which is a semi acoustic four string. Yeah. yeah. So By the way, I love her smoke on the water. Isn't it? That, that's just fucking amazing. Uh, she's, she's the best. She's a trip. And she is funny as shit. Yeah. So, uh, folks, if you want uh, an uh, entertainment value and uh, to catch a little of Leland, uh, go check out Judith. Yeah, Judith is great. Kind of like, you know, like a contemporary Tracy Ullman. Yeah. <laughs> I think she even has her own YouTube channel of, like, Oh, comedy I'm telling her, you know, I mean, she does all these characters that are so amazing and stuff. Yeah. So, you know, but she, yeah, I mean, that household is amazing with her and Harry Shearer together. It's pretty. Oh, I can imagine. Pretty I nice. can imagine. Derek Smalls, greatest bass player in the world. Sorry, Leon. Yeah. I'm sure you would bow to his his prowess as well. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We have taken up so much of your time. I really oh, appreciate pleasure. it. One last silly question. Yeah. Just because you're so close to the man, what in the hell is Susudio really about? You know, that's the whole thing is uh, I had to sign a non-disclosure. <laughs> and we know how well those go. So... Um, yeah, I, I, I know it, it will was, remain a mystery. It has to remain, a mystery. <laughs> but it is one. It's one bear to play, I'll tell you. Oh, I, I can imagine. There's a lot going on in that song. Well, I, I, the thing is, I'm now going to do some shameless self promotion. Created this YouTube channel under my name, and mm -hmm. every day I pick another song that I've worked on, tell backstories, and one of the songs I 
talked about on it is Susudio, and I played Susudio, you know, featuring the bass. And yeah. guys are all writing in going, holy crap, I had no idea. What and that's what you were doing, right, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, you know, the video, uh, you know, I think uh, I think that's part of what, uh, you know, creates the the uh, the allure and the image and the lasting impression of Leland well, Scalar. I'll tell you the story of that was that was filmed in a in a pub in Shepherd's Bush in London. And um, and they we had a, a bunch of friends in there as the audience in front of us during the filming. But the whole the bar was all open to the locals. And our producer on the video walked by a table and this guy sitting here goes, you breathed on me. <laughs> and Paul goes, what are you talking about? I'm sorry, we're, we're working. He goes, you fucking breathe on me. And picks up a bottle and hits him in the face, breaks the bottle <laughs> in. So we're up there playing, Jesus you know, the studio. Ambulance is taking the producer off to the hospital to be stitched up and cops are taking this drunk away. <laughs> Amazing, amazing crazy times, just crazy times. I well, love, I always love doing videos with Phil. Yeah. yeah. Oh, he's fantastic. Yeah. I, you know, I, I'm a huge, huge Genesis fan. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, Phil's playing uh, is pretty amazing. In fact, in fact, in that video, you're pretty much in Genesis because you've got Chester Thompson on uh, on on drums. Yeah. And uh, who I don't think actually plays on the recording. Uh, and then, uh, uh, of course, uh, Daryl yeah. uh, Sturmer on guitar there, uh, you yeah. know, which the, the, the two touring guys uh, for uh, for the, uh, the, the for then there were three Genesis yeah. Uh, eras. So. Yeah, it's a trip. It's all yeah. been a trip. I love yeah. all those guys. It's really been a it's been a wonderful thing, you know, having hooked up with with all those people too. It's uh, yeah, yeah. Been really special. I love all of them. Well, we really look forward to getting uh, the immediate family documentary finished, and uh, mm. and then hopefully uh, out uh, along with the uh, the new album. Uh, boy, if those two things could coincide with each other, that would be yeah. Uh, really it's all it's all predicated on what happens with this world, you know, and yeah. and that's out of our control at this point. So you know. Fingers yeah. crossed that that things people start that they can find, you know, a vaccine, you know, that, you know, people can, you know, be protected from this and uh, they can get on with uh, life as we once knew it, at least some semblance of that. Yeah, it'll yeah. never be the same, but uh, you know, it'd be nice to get close. Yeah, yeah, at least musically. Uh yeah. you know, it's been uh 3 months since I've seen a show and uh that's probably the longest um since I was maybe 16 years old. Yeah. You know? It's uh, that's so that's crazy. So well, we all hope to be seeing and hearing Leland Scalar on the other side of this devastating COVID-19 issue. Um thanks so much for well, spending man, time. Oh man, it's a pleasure. It's been a real joy talking in any time.
Hey, everyone. The great Leland Scalar. Such an interesting guy. You know, I started a nickname for all the guys in the immediate family, and we're going to call Lee the alien. Oh, that's not my invention. I can't take credit for this one. Uh, that moniker was given to me by one of his bandmates. That shall remain anonymous. Seriously, please go check out what these guys are doing. Go to facebook.com backslash the immediate family for updates on the album that will soon be coming out and uh, the documentary that's being worked on. So I ranted last week about toppling statues and how those things shouldn't have been put up in the first place uh, because of the UDC, uh, United Donors of the Confederacy, you know, lost cause and all that fucking shit. Uh, they are not historical to brave acts or righteous causes. In fact, their sole purpose outside a battlefield was to intimidate people of color, plain and simple. But the point is there does need to be a line. And I may not know where the line should be in honoring or dishonoring complicated men. Let's face it, every statue uh, that we're talking about is of a man. Uh, or deciding uh, their honoring needs to be packed away. It's, it's, that's not, I, I just don't know where, where that is. And I'm not going to pretend to I'll let other people kind of figure that out. But I do think a song like the night they drove old Dixie down, uh, shouldn't be on the chopping block. And that was my point last week. Anyway, I want to be positive this week because there really is something especially positive that should work for just about everybody. And it's musical too. Uh, in fact, it actually is a musical. This week on July 3rd, just in time for our American anniversary celebration, uh, when we declared our independence from the English crown, everyone gets to see, or everyone gets an opportunity to see what I consider the, probably the crowning achievement in music from the last decade. I speak of Hamilton. Uh, the Lin-Manuel Miranda created juggernaut of a play. Why do I elevate this single piece to the lofty heights of uh, cultural gold standard of the teens? Well, maybe because it just is and will be remembered as such. And frankly, I didn't notice what might be, you know, in the same realm of, say, the Beatles uh, from the 60s. Um, except for Hamilton in this last decade. Uh, if you've been lucky enough to see the show, I've been lucky enough to see it three times, then you probably know what I mean. If, for some reason, it passed you by, then here is a chance to see the original cast filmed at one of their last shows together on Broadway in 2016. So, is it rock and roll? <laughs> well, yeah, in a way, it certainly is. It's hip-hop, the current uh, music of the street, and it is rather revolutionary, uh, both in story and tone. Um, uh, this is, without a doubt, a game-changer for what's called the Great White Way. I think it's fair to say that just as a musical, it is, without doubt, brilliant. The songs, book, and staging are all of stellar quality. It really is something to watch in person. And let's face it, 
How the fuck can the story of one of the founding fathers of America make such a compelling subject to make a pop musical around? Well, Miranda did. He made history relevant in the 21st century. Of course, casting the very white founding fathers with people of color literally washes away some sins by reminding us that regardless of the original sins of the people who created this country, it is less about them as it is about the principles that are enshrined in the founding documents, that we should honor and celebrate those words that may have been written by seriously flawed men, but in the end provided and still provide the means to continually make a more just and fair society. Albeit two steps forward and one step back over our 244 years. You know, and and given our, our current political crisis, crises, our growing tribalism, our national nightmare, our global pandemic, here's a chance to see what the American experiment was and is really all about. Freedom from tyranny, a chance to resurrect democracy, you know, the people's best chance of actual civic involvement after being off the stage for 2,300 years. And the hope it would be a beacon to all people all over the world, which it has. The ideals are there and easy to see in the documents. The practice, eh, not so much, of course. But as Dr. King said, the arc of the moral universe is long and bends towards justice. And history for the last two and a half centuries certainly seems to be proving that fact. I think we're at another inflection point, another moment where it seems dark and bleak. And it is dark and bleak. (laughs) But the light will always come back. Um, And in in a lot of ways, I I, I see the seedlings growing rather rapidly uh, out there. And it's, it's pretty awesome. I am positive that time will prove me correct, as that is the ultimate judge. Hamilton will be remembered as the musical and cultural achievement of the last decade. Have a good fourth and do yourself a favor and please try to pick up and see Hamilton on Disney Plus channel this weekend. Okay, from the sublime to the ridiculous. Next week, I have the pleasure and fun uh, to take a deep dig into the world of Weird Al Yankovic. Author Lily Hirsch joins me to talk about the world heavyweight champion of the comedy song. She has a new book on him, Weird Al Seriously. Al's been doing this for 40 plus years and certainly deserves the attention of an academic like Lily. As you will see, uh, that is an extraordinary uh, amount of time in uh, the comedic or novelty song arena. And and, and this is not exactly a biography, uh, but a more serious piece of musical journalism. It's deep and comprehensive. Come on back for that fun and enlightening conversation. Okay, let's leave you with Lee laying down the groove with the amazing Billy Cobham from 1972. Here's a song called Stratus. Keep up the rock.
Deeper Digs is hosted by Christian Swain. Produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli. Sound designed by Busy Signal Studios. Engineered by Jerry Danielson, Christy O'Donnell, and Leslie Barker. Find all of our shows, notes, and social links at PantheonPodcast.com. Contact us on social at Pantheon Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods. All songs can be found used in this podcast for purchase or streaming wherever you get your great music. Please pick up these amazing tracks. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.